In this age of information and connectivity, technological advancements have significantly changed the way humans function. From online shopping to social media platforms, virtual worlds are just a click away. However, as our reliance on technology and addiction to social media only seems to be increasing, there has been a drastic decline in something very important to preserving human society as we know it. Empathy. The new form of the internet and social media in particular is designed in a way to decrease empathy, particularly towards people who are very different to you. I think it's been shown time and time again that social media platforms like Facebook influence the, the relationships that we have with each other. They really influence how we communicate with one another. They influence political communication, uh, what information we're exposed to and what information is highlighted versus uh, what information is hidden from us. Now more than ever before, we're aware of the importance of empathy and where we can improve in that and where we need to improve in that. As technology and social media algorithms evolve faster than we can monitor them, how has our ability to empathize with others been affected? What do the Facebook papers reveal about self-regulation? How are governments and individuals responding? And is the answer to this problem fighting fire with fire? You're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Bhageshri Savyasachi. To explain the role of empathy in shaping a healthy society, I invited social psychology expert and PhD candidate at the University of Adelaide, Joshua Crook. There's a philosopher called Peter Singer, who's an Australian philosopher, who has this idea of the expanding circle of empathy which is this idea that normally we feel a lot of empathy for the people who are close to us, but not for the people who are very different. And what it comes down to is that empathy is built off of that system of closeness. How close do you feel to the person in that situation? And the further away you feel, the less empathy you'll feel and the less concern you'll feel and the more kind of indifferent you'll be to that person's suffering. And so your decisions start changing based on the empathy you feel towards the person. And that can have huge ramifications in terms of politics or in terms of law or in terms of how we treat different groups of people. Because if we feel a lot of empathy, we'll start treating them differently and we'll start uh, changing our policies and our actions based on that. Today, where we have access to news from almost every corner of the world, some would say it's become hard to be a compassionate person. But the truth is, technology is making it harder. One of the early quotes from Mark Zuckerberg, who's the CEO of Facebook, when, when he first launched the company, he said something to the extent of, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, maybe our users will care more about the squirrel dying in front of their house than the child dying in Africa. So that's a very similar situation to what I mentioned earlier. And what the social media companies do is they actually build up that wall 
So they'll show you the thing that they think is most relevant to your life. And relevance has become narrower and narrower over time. So the thing that's most relevant to you on social media are people who are exactly the same as you, people who are very similar, people who are having the same experiences at the same stage of life or at the same institution that you're at or in the same group that you're in. And because of that, you're only being shown those sorts of experiences and being shown less things that are different to you. Joshua believes algorithmic bias perpetuated by social media companies plays a big part in polarizing communities online and reducing our ability to see other perspectives. There was a huge study done in the US, also on Facebook, where it showed that white people, for instance, weren't being shown uh, the news articles on black people getting uh, killed by police. So what was happening was those articles were not being shown on their news feeds because there wasn't as much engagement in them. And the algorithm decided it wasn't relevant for them to see that information. And now you can see how there's huge political ramifications for that. Because as soon as you're not seeing information about how other groups are being treated in your society, you don't actually know. You don't know what's happening in your society. And you're voting based on a lack of information. And, and, and you're, you're making decisions without knowing the full extent of, of what's happening. As social media gains more users every day, spending increasing amounts of time online, Joshua fears that people are being confined to an echo chamber of like-minded opinions without anyone to disagree with them. Um, and so what happens on social media is you get put into your group and you get put into uh, groups of people that have the same interests as you or share your political beliefs or share your opinions. And over time, you start seeing more and more of that content. Um, there are both conservative and liberal political people in the US who've uh, expressed this in the sense that because they engage more with content they agree with, they start seeing more and more of that content and they start seeing less and less of content they disagree with. Um, that comes from people uh, who might have a different life experience to them. And so if you're never seeing content from someone who has a different life experience to you, then how can you ever empathize with that person? How can you ever relate to that person? Because you don't actually ever see their life. You don't actually see what they're going through and, and their experience. Joshua explains that the big problem is how technology is now categorizing us and keeping us apart from each other, and that historically, that process has led to the opposite of empathy, which is anger and hatred between different groups. If you look at... Um, I, I always use this example because I think it's a great one. Um, in Northern Ireland, the Protestants and Catholics were at war with each other. And if you think about it, well, you know, both groups have the same race. They have similar backgrounds. They both are Christians and they, and they believe in Jesus and they have all of these similar belief systems. 
but they start killing each other. And so what is happening in those situations is um, the groups start emphasizing the differences between themselves and they start focusing on those differences. And then as a result of that, they see each other as fundamentally different. Um, and that's kind of what social media does as well, because the more you spend time in one group, the more you see yourself as fundamentally different to people who belong to other groups, even though you might have a lot in common. And so one of the things that I think could help is emphasizing some of the similarities um, that we have between people or seeing how our groups actually relate to each other in, in ways that are actually quite productive. He further emphasizes this point using an example much closer to home. You know, in Australia, for instance, uh, Indigenous people are 3% of the population and 29% of the prison population. So that is a horrific situation. And on the policy level and on the, on the legal level, there has to be a lot of work done in that area to try and fix that. But on an individual level, as, as person to person, obsessing over the fact that someone is different to you and, and only looking through that lens when you're talking to them is a very negative thing to do. In October 2021, the Facebook papers were made live on the internet. They were reports of harrowing articles published by the Wall Street Journal investigating Facebook, or Meta as it's now known, which exposed the company's dangerous oversight. The investigation examined documents supplied by whistleblower Francis Haugen, a former product manager at Facebook. The documents revealed that the tech giant continuously ignored alarming evidence of the consequences of its services. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. Among the top revelations reported is the fact that Facebook knowingly promoted violence against Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar and most recently against Tigrayans in Ethiopia. The platform was also being used for human trafficking but failed to put a stop to it. Facebook's own internal research that proved Instagram was harmful for teenage girls and their well-being was kept secret for two years. Dr. Heather Ford, head of digital and social media at the University of Technology, Sydney, says that the issue at hand has been raised many times before, but the capitalistic nature of the problem has discouraged solutions. Social scientists have been talking about this and warning about this for many, many years. And Facebook has been shown to basically be ignoring the um, results from its own researchers as well as other social scientists who've been warning against some of the implications of their algorithms and their technology for society. 
And um, we've known for a long time that this is happening. It's just that um, people haven't really been willing to hear it so much. But right now, there's no real incentive for the big platforms to stop people engaging because engagement means ad revenue and and that has dominated all the decisions that they have made around um, whether to implement more mindful technologies. Um, there was actually a recent example in the, in the Facebook papers that I was just reading about. Dr. Ford is referring to the experimental feature that Instagram introduced in Australia, where users could not see the number of likes on a post. But Facebook made the decision to discontinue this feature because it did not successfully encourage users to post more content. On the other hand, social media platform Twitter has implemented a new feature this year where it stops you from immediately retweeting articles and instead invites you to read the article before you retweet. Dr. Ford says this is a small step in the right direction, stating that anything that encourages people to stop and think is really useful. But is this kind of self-regulation enough? I mean, I think uh, governments definitely have a responsibility to regulate these companies in the same way that they regulate traditional media because of the really important role that uh, the traditional media plays in um, our uh, actions as citizens. the ways that we access our democratic rights are really influenced by the media. And that we became aware of that, you know, in the last century. But um, now there's definitely awareness that governments should be regulating. Um, and I think it's just governments trying to work out what is the best way to regulate because these corporations um, also are, you know, companies that continuously declare um, that they're good for economies and and things like that. And what would a solution for regulating these platforms look like? Often researchers in terms of regulation say that any real solution is going to be a solution in which multiple parties play a role. So you'll have um, governments uh, working together with platforms and with civil society organizations, really importantly, um, and the public, really, to, uh, to regulate collaboratively. That's why regulation is not as simple anymore. It really does require a collaborative approach. And so all the really good models, I think, are coming from that model where, where all these groups are working together in some way. It's not just um, platforms self-regulating as Facebook has tried to do um, with their kind of little jury that they, um, or the committee that they brought together to, to look at certain decisions that were made by Facebook. Um, that's not really going to work at the scale that's needed, um, nor is just the government coming in and, and saying they're going to kind of um, block or ban certain types of technologies. Um, so it really is going to have to be a, a wide-scale collaborative effort, I think, when we look at really successful regulation in the future. 
Contemporary workplaces around the world have already noticed this need for empathy in professional settings. Fortunately for them, there might already be a solution that caters to this demand. And it's kind of like fighting fire with fire, because the answer lies with VR. It's difficult to really understand like how powerful and how significant this technology is that's being created. And I think a lot of people just aren't aware that it exists because you just really have to experience it and live it to understand that it's like it's very, very powerful. Meet Brennan Hatton, a tech prodigy and entrepreneur from Wollongong. Brennan dropped out of university after being recruited for a job in Silicon Valley in the U.S. He shares his experience of witnessing the epic growth of the augmented and virtual reality industry. So this, when I was about 19, I was pulled into this industry. This is 2013. This is like the infancy of the industry. And I was actually positioned, to, saw this in this company where I saw the industry grow. And this company was a leader in this industry, uh, Meta, where I saw the company grow from. I was employee number seven. We grew to about 100 people and we raised $72 million. And we were one of the world's leaders in creating augmented reality glasses, which is uh, sort of in the category of virtual reality and immersive technology. After three years at the company, Brennan wanted to explore newer avenues where VR could really make a difference. I wanted to sort of take it on my own journey and just think, well, what's, where is the best impact of this technology? This technology is so powerful and growing so fast and so much money is going into it. What's the best thing that we can do with it? And so I, I, spent a, I spent a few years looking for this and just traveling around and experimenting with different ideas. And there was this research that came out of Stanford University and their human interaction lab around the use of virtual reality and empathy and how you can use virtual reality to reduce bias, uh, increase empathy and actually lead to behavior change. And they had these really powerful studies uh, on that and how even just virtual reality is an, uh, an immersive learning and um, experiential learning can increase memory retention from like 10% with traditional methods to over 70% with virtual reality. Brennan is now the co-founder and CTO of Equal Reality, a company that claims to be the future of workplace learning. Ironically, Equal Reality provides VR-based workplace diversity and inclusion training with the help of Facebook's own virtual technology. The technology that we use is created by Facebook um, and the virtual reality. So they're the manufacturers of the hardware. Where. So Facebook creates the, um, the virtual reality headsets. Uh, one of their biggest competitors uh, just got bought out by TikTok. Uh, other big players in the space of Microsoft, uh, Google. And so th these are the, the companies that are behind the technology that we use at EcoReality. So we don't build the headsets. We build the simulations and the training that people experience. And we design these experiences so that people can live through somebody else's shoes. 20 years ago, a virtual reality system would have set you back $20 million. Five years ago, it would have cost you about $100,000. But now, for the attractive price of $400, anyone can own a virtual reality headset. The drop in cost of VR technology is one of the reasons Brennan believes that it's the best way to introduce empathy in the workplace. 
there are traditional methods for uh, you know, just improving cultures in the workplace has been giving people experiences, but that's usually done through like a, a one-on-one coaching or via um, and acting, you know, giving someone an experience, hovering actors in. And traditionally that costs, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and you only get to do it to the C-suite. You know, only the executives get it. And then they have to create policies that filter down. And if you want to actually train an entire culture, an entire organization, you, you've got to do it through e-learning. And e-learning is, it's, I mean, like when was the last time that e-learning changed your behavior? It's, it's typically just not that engaging. Virtual reality offers a chance where we can take that impact from giving people actual experiences and we can then spread that out at the scale of e-learning. And we can, we can inject that experience into a culture in a way, way on a scale that's never been possible before. Net promoter scores are used to measure the likelihood of a training course being recommended to others. Equal Reality's training program boasts a net promoter score of 91 out of 100. And what would this virtual reality training experience look like? Brennan highlights the visual and design aspects of Equal Reality's training simulations and explains how they work. We actually co-design these experiences with the clients and the people that face these problems to make sure that the the design of the experience is really authentic. And so we don't um it's not us just sort of like telling saying like hey these are the problems we take the problems from the people and we design it with them and um we designed this one experience with cornell university uh it was called everyday inclusion and it was about um yeah it was about this woman tamara and sort of her experience working at cornell as a, a new hire there and um we, we typically break our experiences into three parts we break them into an empathy piece where we sort of we put you in front of this mirror and so you, you're in virtual reality so you've put a headset on you're in a totally new world now and when then we put you in front of this mirror and when you look in the mirror you see your reflection except it's not you it's now a different body and as you move you know you can wave and it'll wave back and it reacts just like your reflection and if you look down at your body you'll see that your body is now different and you have this new body and um and we and we just sort of give you a moment to do what's called body transfer and it's this subconscious process where you start to actually just associate this body as your own subconsciously even though consciously you're aware in virtual reality subconsciously you're just you're in this you you're, you're taking this new visual as your body and once we're that takes a few minutes and once we sort of do that we give you a bit of background on what you're about to experience we take you into this experience where it's an it's like a, uh, awareness raising experience where you sort of uh, you get put into this social situation, you get treated as if you're this character now and um, you're just experiencing it. You know, you can, you might have some branching options on what you want to say or how you might want to respond to things, but really you're, you're experiencing some kind of discrimination or harassment. Um, and then after that, after going through that, we put you through that again, except we put a, you as in the body of somebody else. So now you're a bystander witnessing this experience and you have a chance to practice your behavior. Uh, and our clients have called this uh, like a fire drill for high stakes social interactions. So it's kind of like a chance where you can just, you know, practice what you're going to do, but nobody's going to get hurt if you do it wrong. You can, you know, it's a safe place to make mistakes, but it's also a place to reinforce good behavior. It's like, no, this is what I would do and get it to that point where it's almost subconscious. So, you know, when this happens, you don't have to think so much about it. You're like, I've done this before. I know what to say. Brennan says the pace in virtual reality is experiential, like something you've just lived through, 
He says our minds treat virtual reality as a lived memory. There's actually this new study that came out of Stanford where they put a bunch of kids through virtual reality diving with whales. And they then, like months later, asked the kids, they're like, hey, you know, who here has ever been diving with whales before? And a bunch of them put their hands up because they had a lived experience. They believed that they had once been diving with whales. And so we, we use that as well in our virtual reality where we create these lived experiences in people. And that's what the virtual reality does so strongly. It's a powerful experience. It's an emotional experience and it's a lived memory. And you've been able to practice in that. And we take that and then we will do a course around it. And so after you've gone through that virtual reality, you know, you might get together with a bunch of people or you might do an online course around, you know, like, like what did you feel going through that? Like, how did that feel to you? And what biases did you recognize? And, and discuss that in a group setting where it's like some people may have recognized uh, one bias, but you might have recognized something different. Everyone, even though isn't it, even though everyone's experiencing the same thing, everyone experiences it differently. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SCR Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can listen to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bageshri Savisachi. Thanks for your company.